Our scripture reading this morning is found in Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, verse 8 to 24. Starting at verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses will be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. And Homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord, or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile For lack of knowledge, their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, or draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down into the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel." So far, the reading of God's word. Open your Bibles now to Psalm 73. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you give us listening hearts, that your word may 
enter in and change. So Lord, bless our time in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Asaph was a Levite whom King David appointed in the service of song in the house of the Lord where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Asaph is also described throughout the scripture as a seer or a prophet. And it was Asaph who wrote Psalm 73. Now, having lived 3,000 years ago, I don't know Asaph, but I like him. I've liked his psalm since I've been a teenager. And I like Asaph in a psalm that he wrote because both Asaph and this psalm describe a dilemma, a problem that I have struggled with and that each one of us here will have wrestled with at some point in our Christian walk. Asaph is struggling to understand the Lord. He knows who God is. He believes in God. And he is following him. Asaph also knows that the Lord is in control of all things. But even in this understanding, something is not adding up. Look to verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And to those who are called by the name of the Lord, the Lord is good. And for we who know the Lord, we agree. But then verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Yes, God is good. But something is wrong. What Asaph knows to be true about God does not line up with what he sees playing out in real time before his eyes. So what does Asaph see playing out? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And here is the dilemma of Asaph. If God is so good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, why is he also good to the wicked? Why does God seem to bless those who have absolutely no thought for him? To borrow perhaps an outdated expression, the wicked seem to get their cake and can eat it too. They get to have moral freedom, their indulgence in the flesh, and blessing as well. Upon seeing this contrary result that the wicked are thriving, there arises a certain level of envy of the godless. And envy of their prosperity is it seems that those who don't know God are not shackled by the need to play by any moral rules. And Asaph is struggling with this. Verse 4. For they have no pain until death. Their bodies are sleek and fat. 
And yes, God offers living water, but if there's no consequence, look what we could have. This is all new Aiderade. My youngest daughter, Emma, helped me name it. Not to be confused with Gatorade or Powerade. This is by our own design. We've made it. And it's sweet to the taste. And it has far less calories than the name brand. It also has electrolytes and is ice cold. And we've also added minerals and vitamins. In faithfulness or worldliness, if God blesses both, well, then one is certainly more desirable than the other. Asaph will continue his complaint of God blessing the world in verse 5. Just look at the world. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And since God seems not to take notice, and does not judge or strike the evildoer, there seems not to be any cause or effect. In other words, there's no reason for the wicked to see themselves as wicked. And the conclusion that we might draw for us who are looking on is that our choices simply don't matter. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, makes a statement that pain shatters the illusion that all is well. That pain shows us that we are in the wrong. But if there is no pain, it baffles our sense of justice. Last year, Herbert Kohler died after a long life of 83 years. He was known as a legend in the business community with a net worth of $8.8 billion. He was admired by many as an accomplished, dynamic leader, independent-minded entrepreneur, courageous innovator, and passionately creative. Herb more than anyone, lived and breathed his company's mission of providing wealth for his customers, loved business, loved his company, loved golf. Yet in every available tribute there is, there is nothing about his love for the living God. Nothing about him even having a pass or a thought for God. Yet there seems to be no pain, only blessing with $8.8 billion. Herbert's choice to live for his own personal desires don't seem to matter. Or Joseph Schultz, the Nazi prison guard who worked at a death camp for three years and now still alive at 101 years old. Although he was just recently sentenced, he most likely won't see any prison time because he's too old. What's perhaps worse than no punishment is that although his actions were proven in court, Joseph has denied all ownership for his actions 
and has showed no remorse. A depraved and evil man, yet not stricken by the Lord. Don't Joseph's actions have an effect? Don't his actions of aiding and abetting the murder of over 3,500 prisoners matter to God? This is at the heart of Asaph's complaint, that there is no pain for the wicked. There is no striking of the foolish. And on top of that, they are blessed. Riches and long life. This lack of punishment has yet another effect. Since there is no immediate judgment for those who ignore God, there arises a certain bravery, a daring and boldness from the wicked to throw caution in the wind. They live as they want with no consequences, and so they double down. Verse 6. Therefore, since they are not in trouble or stricken by God, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And now Asaph is becoming bitter, and he's worked up, and he begins to exaggerate. Their eye swells. The New American Standard would say, their eye bulges from fatness. And their hearts overflow with foolishness. They scoff and speak with malice and loftily they threaten oppression. And when humanity cannot seem to connect the dots between our own foolishness and the destructive outcomes, foolishness becomes mistaken for deep insight. We become so wise in our own eyes that the target of our warped wisdom is not limited to our fellow man or the workings of society, but turned against heaven itself. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Such unrestrained folly that it moves from subjugating their fellow man to attack on God himself, along with his moral character. Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist, has removed all restraint by spouting provocative statements in his books and his interviews against God. He is delighted to speak against or tear down and insult the one true God. And after each tirade, we as the people of God are waiting for the lightning to strike. But the strike does not come. God would warn through the prophet Isaiah that we read earlier, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd, in their own sight. The word woe in the Hebrew is the opposite of the word for a blessing and is defined as a curse. Yet the curse does not come. Dawkins' arrogance is not a one-off in our culture, but only one small mouthpiece of a society at large. In the late 1940s, George Orwell would write in his book, a book called 1984, and you might be familiar with certain terms like Big Brother 
or the thought police, terms which Orwell coined in his book. And Winston, the main character, is living in a dystopian empire that seeks to control actions, truth, history, and even thought. And in one particular chapter, a disillusioned Winston attempts to wrestle with the indoctrination of doublespeak, the language of the ruling class, which Orwell defines as this. To know, yet not to know. To be conscious of a complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out, knowing them to be contradictory, yet believing in them both. To use logic against logic. To repudiate morality, all the while laying claim to it. Maybe Orwell's book should have been renamed 2023. In all their so-called wisdom, those who have no thought for God claim that one's feelings and urges and fleshly desires are a matter of one's own personal truth. That there is no universal truth. All the while insisting that this point of view is universally true. The party of our ruling class uses the science of gender studies to disprove the science of gender, attempting to use logic to defeat logic. Our world hates morality, all the while claiming the moral high ground. It's as Orwell observed, they seek to undo truth with truth. They attempt to use logic to defeat logic. They disdain morality, all the while laying claim to it. So where is God? Why are the wicked not only allowed to draw their next breath, but thrive? This seeming absence of God not only emboldens the wicked, but it tempts the righteous. If the end result of drinking Aderade is no different than living water, what are we hesitating for? Even as illogical and devastating as the world's doublespeak is, we ourselves can get drawn into this arrogance. The prosperity and freedom to do anything that one would desire, to fulfill every longing for the flesh, to be able to sleep around, get drunk, get high, pursue money and power with no consequence, it can have a certain appeal to have a listening ear to our every word of wisdom or to have a following to our extraordinary insightful posts on social media might be rather enviable. Asaph notices this temptation to join in by God's people and we get this interesting line in verse 10. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. 
If you check your footnotes, you might see a, a little number one or something there. Because you'll see this line. The waters of a full cup are drained by them. And if we are following the dilemma of the wicked prospering, it's logical to read verse 10 like this. Therefore, God's people turn to follow the wicked. The waters of a full cup are drained by them. And this imagery of a full cup or living waters is not new to the readers of Asaph. And as Pastor Kevin has been leading us through Jeremiah, it's not new to us either. And what we have here is a picture of the faithfulness of God's people being drained by the siren song of this evil generation. And verse 11 says, And how can God know? They ask. Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease and increasing in riches. And all of these are examples to spell out Asaph's dilemma. If God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, why is he also good to the wicked? There is no pain for sin. Our choices don't matter. And we could join them, and we ourselves could be seen as wise. Young people, teenagers, and college and career, listen to this. Listen. As this dilemma may be worming itself into your heart even now. If God is good to the wicked who seem to prosper, listen to the logical conclusion of those who are demoralized in their Christian walk. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. God, what is happening? I've kept myself sexually pure for nothing. I've avoided certain friends and being popular for what? I've set aside Aiderade and I've stuck with living water. I've been avoiding the world and its good times, its parties, and its entertainment. Look at them. Look at their fun. Look at their freedom. But then look at me. Loneliness at school or work. Then there's the awkwardness of restraining my eyes from their perversity or from laughing at their crude jokes. And we get chastised and ridiculed and disciplined, and God doesn't seem to care. Years ago, when I was applying for the fire department, and I was in fire school, and I was looking for a job anywhere in southwestern Ontario. Six months later, nothing. A year later, nothing. A year and a half, 
two years. Lord, the students in my fire science class, they're getting hired. And they have no thought for you. Some are even an open defiance. Isn't there some sort of special privilege for obedience? Isn't there some sort of penalty for those who care nothing for the Lord? Lord, how are we to understand this? Many of us here can identify in dating perhaps a friend or a sibling who cares very little for the Lord. Yet look at the perfect gem that you've brought them. Lord, what about me? I'm getting older. Don't you care? In health. Lord, why do we who know you and who love you get heart problems? Frozen shoulder. Crippling arthritis. Cancer. Bad joints. Glaucoma. Skin disease. In life. Lord, why did you allow my house to burn down, or my car to be stolen, or my loved one taken away in such an untimely manner? Even in our Christian walk, have we not put you first in every area of our life? Yet our kids have no thought for you. And these immature believers, their kids are following you with a whole heart. Was it something I said? Did I sin? Am I being punished? When Job lost everything, the natural inclination of his friends was that Job must have sinned. They admitted Job. You sinned, why else would God allow such pain? Are we being judged for sin? I'd like to follow this up with a quick note. Sin can carry its own consequence. You steal something and your conscience will bother you. You may begin to feel sick or become paranoid of guilt. You may lose trust with your loved ones or be arrested and punished by the law. But that being said, our sin is not made right when we stub our toe or get into a car accident. I guess I deserve that one, Lord. Well, now we're even. Not even close. Even if God were to send a massive disaster and judgment, the resulting pain is not designed to purify sin, but to draw the attention of sinners to himself. And sin is so contrary to God's holiness that not even a thousand lifetimes in hell could burn off one transgression. No amount of sickness or cancer or arthritis could ever come close to paying for our sin. This is not how the Lord works. The earth is cursed. And yes, the Lord allows certain evil to play out, but not in such a way to even things up. This wayward thinking is why we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. 
It's why we're commanded to observe the Lord's table to remind us that only the blood of Jesus can atone for our sin. Our earthly suffering is not some sort of purifier, but only a reminder of the curse and of our personal fallenness and that we need the forgiveness of the Lord. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Amen? Amen. He is the perfect sacrifice, and it is only through our placing our faith in Him that we are cleansed by our sin. So back to our question. If the wicked are not judged, there is no pain for sin, their choices don't seem to matter, their arrogance reaches the heavens with no reaction, why have I washed my hands in innocence? Look to verse 16. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. To unravel the mystery that God allows such suffering to good people and seems to bless the wicked, it's exhausting and seemingly impossible. To attempt to solve the dilemma of Asaph often results in emotional exhaustion and sleepless nights. That is until the Lord in his wisdom allows a unique perspective that we call context. Context is defined as the surrounding circumstance in which an event occurs. To put something into context, then, is to zoom out, to take that in which surrounds, to take in the big picture, to understand the dilemma of the prospering of the wicked. The Lord God is going to provide some context, help us zoom out, to step back and see the bigger picture. Look at the context in 16 and 17. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. To come into the sanctuary of God is not some mystical journey or religious building. It's not some inner place inside ourselves but simply to enter into the presence of the Lord. To come into the presence of the living God can be as simple as a time in God's word. A quiet time of contemplation and meditation on the Lord. A moment of solemn prayer or a song that directs us to the power and the love of our God. It can be a time where the Holy Spirit communes with our spirit. Have you ever experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit? You're, you're reading God's word, fully intending to do your devotions, and you just can't get through it. You're just suddenly directed to pray. And your heart is overwhelmed, and, and joy comes and surrounds. And this is what it means to enter into the sanctuary of God. 
And when we enter into the sanctuary of the Lord, for those who know their God, the big picture comes rushing in like a whirlwind. And watch what happens to Asaph, verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. There is context, a bigger picture, more information about eight or eight as well. Everything I said about it is true. It is sweet. We've added sugar. It is cold. It has electrolytes in it. I've even added vitamins and minerals. Unfortunately, those minerals are copper sulfate and copper manganese. Great for your plants, but rather poisonous for humans. And it's interesting what what context does. What once seemed appealing now becomes a distraction. There becomes a, a real concern that what if one of our kids were to go up and have a drink after the service? Perhaps so much of a concern right now. I've got one of my friends here. He's going to take this away and he's going to dispose of Aid or Aid. And worldliness, which Aid or Aid represents, it looks appealing, but it's a fraud. And the living waters that the world seeks to replace with this poisonous substitute, Jesus says is the water that wells up to eternal life. And this is what the context of the sanctuary of God does. This is what the big big picture of the Lord does. It solves Asaph's dilemma. This is the effect of entering into the presence of the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. The mind of God, which seems such a mystery at times, becomes as clear as the noonday sun. God does see the plight of the righteous. And he sees your plight too. The wicked do not get a free pass. There is pain in their death. They are stricken and in trouble, and they will reap full reward of their foolishness. And this is only for a start in this present life. Then, when the great and awesome day of the Lord arrives, terror as he despises them as mere wisps. It's interesting how the clarity of the Lord's presence in our troubles not only put life into perspective, but our frustration and bitterness with God becomes an embarrassment. Look how Asaph describes himself in his doubt in verse 21. When my 
soul was embittered. When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Yet in his frustration and ignorance and his forgetting, look how he describes God. Nevertheless, here is the faithfulness of God in our weakness. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? It reminds us of the disciples in John 6, doesn't it? The crowds are leaving Jesus. want nothing more to do with him. And he turns to his disciples and do you want to go too? And they respond, Lord, to whom else shall we go? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And here is the promise of God that we'll land on this morning. Verse 26. Our flesh and our heart may fail. But God is the strength of our heart and my portion forever. Amen. Amen. Perhaps the dilemma of Asaph has been troubling you. The wicked prosper while you are stricken. Our godless peers seem to thrive while we suffer. Or maybe you've been tempted into thinking, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That's all for nothing. I could try to encourage you. I could tell you that God cares. I could tell you that the wicked do not get a free pass. Or this. I could direct you to the presence of the Lord. And let him reveal himself to you. Let him teach you of himself. His holiness. His coming judgment for the wicked. And his great love for his people. I'm going to invite Ben and Jody to the front now. And as Jody sings Psalm 46, Be still my soul. I invite you right where you are in your pew to enter into the presence of the Lord. And as the words are sung, let them be our closing prayer. Let this be our response to the Lord. Let the context, the bigger picture of who God is, solve your dilemma. Pray along with Jody as she sings.